2: Welcome to episode 97 of the Highly Relevant Podcast I am your host Jack Rico and if this is your first time listening to the show Thank you for discovering us Hey, before we get going, what's the catchiest song you heard this year? For me it's been Good Vibes from Fuego and Nikki Jam I want to know what yours is Let me know what your catchiest song has been via my Twitter account at Official. That's Jack Rico Official. Would love to hear from you well, on this week's episode, I talk with Basil Siokas, the program director of Doc NYC. That is America's largest documentary festival about this year's Latinx documentaries and why so many Latinx stories are starting to be made. And if you're going to the movies tonight, film and culture critic Mike Sargent talks to me about two new releases, Hugh Jackman's political drama The Front Runner and the World War II horror action film Overlord. Be right back. Doc NYC, America's largest documentary festival, takes place over eight days in New York City from November 8th through the 15th. To discuss many of the Latinx documentaries that will be premiering at the festival is program director Basil Siokas. Welcome to the podcast, Basil. Thanks for having me. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I got an email from uh, one of the publicists and it said Latinx documentaries. And it wasn't like one Out of the three hundred that you guys do, it was like ten of them, and it's very, and uh, it's very interesting because most festivals really promote their Hispanic offerings in the form of Spanish language films, uh, Latin American films, foreign films, but U.S. Hispanic films are rarities. Whether it's from a U.S. Hispanic director, which are very few in the United States to U.S. Hispanic American stories that, for the most part, go uh, mostly ignored. So when I saw that, I said, wait a minute, there's films about stories about us or that uh, originate with some sort of uh, root from uh, U.S. Hispanics. So uh, thank you very much for coming on. And tell me about how you've kind of composed these Latinx stories within Doc NYC.
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a great point you're making, and, and we were just really really pleased this year that so many uh, so many features were. Uh, about Latin American, uh, or Latino, uh, Latino, Latina, Latino Latinx, um, subjects. Uh, and, uh, I'd love to say that we did that deliberately, but it just is organically part of the process of, of sort of the, the best films that popped out happened to be, um, you know, am, amongst these themes. Uh, and we were just thrilled to be able to uh, present these to, um, to larger audiences in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are uh, the, the the films we're talking about. There's um, you know somewhere around a dozen or so, I'd say, um, uh, feature films. Um. They kind of run the gamut. There are films that are that are in different sections of the festival. The way that DOC NYC is presented is, um, we very largely do a lot of thematic programming. So there may be a section uh, for a film like *Train de San which is um, about uh, kids growing up with parents in, 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 that are who are incarcerated. That's in a section called *Modern Family*, which is uh, looks at different kinds of family structures out there. Um, or we might have a film like one that you're probably very familiar with, and your your audience is probably very familiar with, called *The Center*. Mm-hmm. Um, big film that debuted at a Sundance, won an audience award there. That's part of our shortlist section, which is um, films that are that we're sort of highlighting as um, the, the big award contenders for the year. Ie, our way of predicting what might make it into the Oscars, uh, you know, t- for discussion. Um, so, you know, you've got lots of different kinds of ways of approaching this. I, one, one thing I will say is that. I really don't believe in kind of ghettoizing films by putting them in just a Latin section. So we don't really have that per se. Um, I want to make sure that all audiences know about these films and are experiencing them um, in different ways. So, you know, there there are films that are um, in competition section. There are films that are focused on families. There are films that are focused on, um, you know, uh, portraits of individuals. Um, so they're kind of all over the place within the lineup, so that they're spread. Um, you know, we can spread the love a bit.
2: It's interesting that you that uh, you termed it ghettoizing um, these films. And um, I think what you were trying to say is 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 categorizing them into a division of Latinx films. Is that what you were trying to say? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean,
3: the way, what I mean by that is that I've often found because I've done other festivals and um, you know where if you present films in a particular to a particular specifically this is the these are the Latin American films in this Latin American section it could be a signal that they that they shouldn't be watched by anybody else like they're only for this audience and so that's you know we absolutely want to serve our our, um, our Latino audience certainly. But we also want to make sure that everybody gets a chance to see these films as well. And also that Latin audiences don't think that we just put the films in one place and it's kind of let's forget about it. So so that's sort of what I mean. Like these are right. films that are not just sort of put into one pigeonhole. They're about lots of different things. And we want to make sure everybody knows about them, including our, um, our Latin audience out
2: there. Listen, I think that's very interesting uh, because I've been conditioned. It's kind of like the way we uh, watch movies and we understand the difference between a Hollywood film and an independent film. Just yeah. because we've been conditioned through a particular pace, cadence, format, right? I'm not offended by any by any way, and anyway, and I'm Hispanic. I'm Colombian American. Yeah. Um, I uh, I would not have had a problem if you had created a Hispanic category within the doc NYC. I would not have been offended or disrespected in any way, uh, feeling like you know we're inferior to the rest of the class. Um, for me. The reason categories are important, it's because sometimes you lose a sense of where those stories are at together and you kind of want to combine them together. So, for example, when I got the email about the Latinx experience at the Doc NYC, it just visually my brain went, oh, they have Hispanic films and it's just not one. Yeah. If I would have seen just the full list of the 300 ones, I would have never made that connection. Right. So I guess from a marketing aesthetic, uh, that would not have been that much of a problem. But I do like the way you think, though. But
3: for me, it's kind of like both ways, Because right. like, we we don't have a separate section, but we do have ways for people to find these films on our website by looking up specific themes. So so it's it's kind of having our cake and eating it too in in a way. Like we're not we're not sort of putting them all in one, just one category, right. but we are making it possible for people to find them if that's the category they're looking for.
2: You know, what you're doing marks the pace of a brand new era and uh, the way people are approaching uh, Hispanic content in particular. We have Univision, we have Telemundo, uh, we have Hollywood creating Hispanic movies specifically for Hispanic people, but what we're understanding is that a film like Crazy Rich Asians, which could have been five years ago targeted specifically and exclusively to an Asian audience... Well, we all found out that everybody wanted a piece of it. Right, exactly. (laughs) The the, the fact that you're including these Hispanic stories within the rest of the mainstream slate makes me want to ask why there have been so many Hispanic stories coming out from documentaries and that you guys have uh, looked at it, accepted it, and are premiering it. What is the difference between the Hispanic stories today than before? Why are we seeing so many more of them?
3: Um, I mean, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think with documentaries in general, um, I think that there are more stories possible there because I think the the barriers to production in documentary is a lot is a lot less costly and a lot less. Mm. You know, there's you don't need to sign up big stars necessarily. You don't need to have like the the, the, the big sort of um, budgets for for documentary films that you do for, uh, you know, for for a feature for a narrative feature film that you expect will reach to a larger audience. You can make low-budget narrative films, obviously, as well, but um, you know, I'm talking on a general level, and I, I think that that's one thing. So I think that you know there there is the ability to to sort of make these films um, a little bit more inexpensively than you would for a uh, fiction film. So that's one. Um, two, you know, specifically, I do I do think that there there is uh, there is an element of of representation that I think is is increasingly important in a very divided society that we have, and that people want to tell stories about people that are. Not your, not the the stories that are being told everywhere else. You know, not the the white male stories. Um, And I think that's important. I think it's important to remember that that our country, in particular, is uh, one that's built on diversity. And uh, we we forget that. Some of us forget that more than others. And I think that people are recognizing that and either wanting to tell those other stories, even if they are themselves not let's say Latin Latin or are themselves Latino and want to tell their own stories. So I, I think that's, that's a big part of it is, is sort of, you know, part of like, mm-hmm. Hey, look at me. I've got a story to tell here it is, or if these subjects happen to be Latino and they're really interesting. And I want it, I want to make sure that their story gets, gets out there as well.
2: Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the films, uh, Sure. which ones, I know all of them are great, uh, but which huh. ones in particular, if people don't have the chance to see all 12, uh, right. what are some of the, Key highlight ones that uh, everybody's excited about.
3: You know, one film which I think is incredibly universal in its, in its subject matter, but done in such a smart way, uh, is a
2: film called Care to Laugh. I'm excited to be here. You know, I got two kids, ages
1: 70 and 71. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know he was taking care of his parents. I didn't know any of that. I'm sure we've all heard it where it's like it takes a village to raise a kid, but it's like it also takes a village to help somebody age gracefully. Um,
3: that is about the comedian Jesus Trejo. Um, he's a stand-up. Uh, he's been on lots of television shows, uh, you know, like uh, doing stand-up on different television programs, uh, late-night talk shows, etc. Um, and does lots of gigs at the Comedy Store, other places in LA. Um, you know, so it's about him and his career and sort of him making it as a stand-up comic. But what's really interesting about it too is that he's also um, taking care of his elderly parents. And so it's also about caregiving at the same time. And he, t- the, you know, as a, as a creative person, he's able to turn the experiences of dealing with these two 80 year olds parents who are now kind of his kids into routine, into uh, fodder for his standup routine. So it's, it kind of weaves in perfectly the way that the story is told. Um, so, and again, you know, that's, a, there's multiple things going on there. It's like kind of that aspirational, like can I make it in this business kind right. of story here, mm-hmm. but it's also the really universal story of, you know, there are, you know we're dealing with parents who are aging out uh and poor and, or aging and who are requiring care and so this is something that i think is something that anybody could relate to whether you're of this background or not whether you're a comedian or you know working in a shop or a doctor or whatever it is like you, you know you're dealing with these issues with with caregiving so i think that's um i think that's a really interesting one to point out again with that universality of it um, and then then there are stories that are uh, you know there's two films uh, that we have that are dealing with immigration in different ways but obviously this is a huge a uh, huge topical issue these days, and has been for a while, um, but one of those, them is Colossus.
1: I was giving my hat, I was giving my sweater, you know, to America. I was leaving the best, the best to them. I did everything to this country and they kicked me out like that. Two weeks, the presidential election. That I can't just like wake up one day and be like, hi mom, how are you doing? Like my sister. I'm like, America, can you help me do something? Can you give me advice?
3: It's the story of a boy named Jamil, who at the start of the film is, I think, about 15 years old. He, his family, uh, his family came over from Honduras. Uh, they were undocumented. He didn't know that he was born in the U.S. And when the rest of the family is discovered, uh, you know, it's a routine kind of traffic ch- uh, stop kind of situation. Um, they get sent back, and he has to decide whether he's going to, you know, go back to the, the states or live in Honduras uh, with his family. And, and for various reasons, he has to be separated from his family. So that's the really tragic sort of microcosmic look at what is what is wrought by these uh, these repressive uh, immigration policies. And then another one, which is um, which I think is a really fascinating film, making its world premiere with us, uh, is a film called The Great Mother. Thousands of children who are American citizens. Are being ripped from their mothers and fathers
0: and thrown into foster care to grow up. I'm gonna be alone now. Meet a woman known as the Great Mother, Nora Sandico. It's
3: just a really interesting story of a very giving woman who's trying to deal with this orthodox situation that's happening, um, that's splitting up, up, apart families because of crazy U.S. policies. Um, so those, those are two that I would really, really highlight as super important, very personal films mm-hmm. because they're dealing with real people, real people's lives in a, in a kind of very, um, you know, they're dealing with these larger, broader issues, but through individual stories.
2: Uh, final question, Doc NYC, not many people might not know about it. Um, and what you've been seeing, at least I have been seeing is that, Documentaries are becoming just as thrilling as any other movie. The resurgence, the renaissance of the documentary in today's era, compared to the traditional format of film. Yeah. Uh, why is it important to watch documentaries? Why is it important to make documentaries?
3: Yeah, I mean, again, another great question. I mean, I think like we've we've been witnessing for the past say fifteen or so years a resurgence, a renaissance, really in the in the documentary sphere. Um, where where we we're looking at films that are actually films it, like a lot a lot of your listeners may sort of relate documentaries to sort of boring educational films that they that are on PBS or that they were forced to watch in school um, that's really not what documentaries are these days and thank God for that like they are really well told stories they're crafted with a, with an idea to be cinematic many of them um, to be able to be put on a screen in a movie theater and. You have a satisfying experience watching them, like you would any other kind of fictional film. Um, there, you know, so a lot, a lot of thought goes into it in terms of finding the right kind of character, to finding the right kind of way of telling the story in a way that is exciting, interesting, provocative, not just a dry recitation of facts. Right? These are all films. Right? like these. This is not just a. You know, yes, some of these—the natural home for them—might be on television, but for a lot of them, the natural home is on a screen, and it is using the same kind of conventions of storytelling that a fictional film would, would take. Um, you know, again, even within this sort of subgroup of of uh, Latinx films, we've got titles that are uh you know we got we got a film called screwball which is about this crazy i love funny, this one i yeah, read it this stories, is great yeah it's ridiculous like it's a, the story about like doping scandal in baseball and, and other sports really it's focused on alex rodriguez and, and other players that are dealing with that were, that were part of this larger doping scandal um but it's totally ridiculously funny at the same time it's dealing with a serious issue but it's 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 bringing humor to it and again i will say Documentaries on the whole don't tend to be t- super funny. Some of them are. This happens to be one of them that does a really good job at. it. So you have got that, and you got right next to it a film like, um, you know, like *Patrimonio*, which is a really smart uh, human rights watch, uh, human rights-oriented film about uh, a group of fishermen in Baja Mexico that are being um, sort of pushed out of their terrain by um, a, a large development deal by a hotel. So like, you, these are both documentaries, but they're both films, and they're both telling stories in really fascinating ways, and they're doing them. They're doing them through different kind of techniques. Patrimonio is like thrilling in a certain way. And Screwball is really funny in its own way.
2: Basil Sioka, program director of Doc NYC, which takes place November 8th through the 15th. Thank you so much, Basil, for being on the podcast.
3: Thanks so much. I appreciate it.
2: Joining me now is Mike Sargent. You can see him on Fox Business News, PBS, and also listen to him on WBAI Radio here in New York. And I'm glad to call him a friend. Mike Sargent in the house.
1: Jack Rico.
2: <laughs> All right, brother. So this weekend it's not stellar in terms of films. It's not blockbuster films. These aren't the Oscar best picks. But these are some really interesting films. Uh, One of them has some potential to be a conversation in the Oscar race uh, in some categories. The other one is just pure escapism, and I wanted to talk to you about them. The first one is The Front Runner with Hugh Jackman. It's directed by Jason Reitman, and it has to do with the Gary Hart uh, scandal of 1988.
1: My name is Gary Hart, and I'm running for president. Senator,
2: I want to ask you some questions about the woman at your townhouse. Can you tell us how you know her?
1: You can't be serious. No one is staying in my home. There's no need for that.
2: Uh, I I am serious, sir. (laughs) The second one is Overlord, which is a zombie film that takes place in World War II. Welcome to France.
0: What happened here?
1: You want to begin with The Front Runner? The Front Runner is about uh, what happened with uh, uh, this charismatic politician named Gary Hart, who was literally the front runner for the Democratic Party back in 1988. And he was running a campaign that was just blowing people away. There was there was no way you could beat this guy. He had that all American everything. But a extramarital relationship was unveiled. And you know, this tells the story of how it happened, why it happened, and why he imploded so quickly. Because right. if you never heard of Gary Hart, the reason is like he just like disappeared. Mm-hmm. And the name Donna Rice, for those who are old enough, would ring a bell because her name stayed in the, you know, tabloids for quite some time. She's
2: sort of the Monica
1: Lewinsky. She was the mo- She was the precursor. Yeah, she was the precursor to a Monica Lewinsky. And at the time, the most interesting part, really, about it is that it was the time when when tabloid journalism and and political journalism really kind of merged for the first time, which is you know, how things it's today, that's just, they're one and the same. But back then, it was a big difference. And a scandal like that was not a political Watergate kind of scandal. This is like, you know, it's not like it was in the 60s where a JFK might've had something with a Maryland and there was just whispers and rumors. Mm-hmm. They could suppress it. You know, media, TV, just journalism in general was kind of coming into its own in terms of its reach and its ability to destroy a political career.
2: Right. So if you're somewhere in the United States right now or outside in Europe and uh, but let's just keep into the United States and you are interested in going to the movies and you saw Hugh Jackman. Oh, my God. It's Wolverine. <gasps> I'm going to go see anything that Hugh Jackman's in because it's a Marvel, you know, movie. No, no, guys. Uh, Hugh Jackman does other types of movies that are in Marvel movies and that are in Wolverine. And this is one of them. This is a stretch for him uh, in terms of creating characters like this. He's done dramas before. Um, He's a great actor, you know, and and, and the more and more that I see Hugh Jackman do other types of work, you could start seeing this man's range. Um, I had a chance to actually be at a press event where Hugh Jackman was there. Uh, So was Jason Reitman. It was at the Crosby Street Hotel. That's uh, here in New York City. It's in uh, Soho. And it's one of the places where a lot of the movie studios are doing a lot of these press events. So this, I I must have seen The Front Runner like a month ago. And Hugh Jackman walked in. And they said, hey, would you like to talk to Hugh Jackman? I said, sure. And one of the parallels that I had asked him was, all right, Hugh, look. Gary Hart was taken down by the paparazzi. But at the time, it wasn't called the paparazzi. It was just called the press. Right. Right. Uh, Today, we have a more heightened, aggressive... Exactly. Uh, Journalism that if you're a public figure, the way Gary Hart was and the way you are today, what kind of negative impact does that have on your life? And do you think it's what ultimately did him in? And do you think it'll ultimately do you in as a public figure? And he looked at me straight in the eye, made eye contact, smiled and said, you know what? The difference between Gary Hart and me is I'm transparent where he wasn't. And I thought that was really interesting because what would have happened if Gary Hart would have taken more of a apologetic, transparent stand? Uh, would he have been president of the United States? Because that's where it was headed to.
1: There's two things I, I want to talk about with what you just said. You bring up an interesting point is is that is how much can the public or your supporters, more importantly, your constituents, forgive? You know, uh, Donald right. Trump has famously said he could kill somebody on the street and still you know, running. And at this point, you kind of believe it. And his understanding of the cult of celebrity, the cult of, of you know, following, the, just how strong, you know, people will follow somebody to the end. How is that balanced against how much people really want to see you fail? Mm. And 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 in America, we all know the and it's a cliche, but it's true. We love an underdog. We love somebody who makes a comeback. We're 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 ready to see Tiger Woods win again,
2: right? Know? But we also we're, like to create the star, and then we love to see him tumble. Well, that's, that's America. Just
1: it. That is definitely America. And, but at the same time, we can forgive him. You know, we you know, there's tons of examples, uh, and especially then, and especially men. Where you can forgive someone for whatever it is. Look at Bill Clinton got in the second term, you know. So that's that's an interesting point. But the other thing that's interesting is I, I also think what you just said and what Hugh Jackman said there is part of the reason why this film does not completely work. Oh, interesting. I, so you don't
2: like the movie?
1: Well, I like the movie, but what I felt was the biggest flaw of the movie is we see. Gary Hart we see what happened to him we see what he did but did you walk away having any understanding of why he did it why he 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 was so staunchly you know why why because the
2: movie wasn't about his psychology the movie was I mean this is what I spoke to Jason Reitman about okay let me be blunt about it spoke to Jason Reitman and I called him out in his face I said you're ending ambiguous and it seems to be a trend amongst many directors and i'm calling you out jason reitman that is a cop-out and he says and he just looked at me smiled and he's like who the hell is
1: this guy you know Mm -hmm. i'm ivan reitman's son uh he didn't know you were jack rico he didn't know i was jack rico jack rico Uh, (laughs) asks the hard questions so you don't have to (laughs)
2: I think he got a stench of that, man. He got a whiff of that from me. And I said to him that, and he just looked at me, smirked, and then also said, listen, I don't find interesting answers that everyone knows. It's boring to me, and it's two-dimensional. Nuances, complexities, you having it uh, subject to your interpretation and how you view it, is much more interesting to me. It's like, yeah, but I don't want to figure it out. I got other stuff that I have to figure out and I'm paying money for this to go see this movie. Not me personally, but most people. So if you're going to give me an ambiguous ending or you're going to chase me down this rabbit hole to then finally not tell me what this movie's about and you're leaving it up to me to decipher the puzzle, yeah, to you it's interesting, But it's not interesting to me. I'd like more of a resolution, a clear one that I can articulate better. And that's probably the thing that I didn't like, but I cannot take away um, how great the movie was directed. The opening scene is a one-take shot. Beautiful. I would put that among some of the best one-take shots I've seen in years, and I would also put this movie amongst some of the best political dramas uh, that Hollywood has ever done. Wow. Wow. It was All right. excellently done. The cast was great. The dialogue, uh, the debate uh, between press and politics, because it's so timely, it resonated more. It was more profound. I saw the nuances uh, from movie, from art to reality. Um There was so many things that I really enjoyed. The thing that I didn't enjoy was just that ambiguous ending, but it seems to be more of an artistic take on it as opposed to a defect.
1: I didn't enjoy the movie as much as you. Now, that being said, definitely some really good acting, definitely good filmmaking overall there, and I think Reitman's definitely a good filmmaker. Uh, But I I felt, you know, if I'm going to spend two hours with this guy, okay, who you know, whether I heard of him or not. And I'm going to see, especially at this stage of the game, you know, where, you know, we're in the, the, the me too generation where we, we get it. Men do behave badly. Okay. I, I want to know, I want to know why is this man who had everything doing this? Why? And more importantly, you know, why was he so, you know, adamant about not, uh um, Admitting to it, not being transparent, as you say, and and you know, I would want that's what I wanted to understand. I to, I don't need to see another story about a man who threw away his career because of his his, uh, his ego, his hubris, his his you know, without walking away understanding, you know, that man as as a complete person, not just as a political figure, not just as a as a, a a failed husband or, or a failed political candidate. I, I want more. Now, that being said, you know, I don't think it's as bad as something like Hoffa, where, again, <laughs> you know, Hoffa, it's like, With okay, Jack we got acting, yeah. Jack Nicholson. You got good acting, good performances, but I didn't understand anything about Jenny Hoffa. I, I, I don't, I, I just saw the stuff that is known about him. And that that's really what I saw as the flaw in this movie. As a matter of fact, what you're talking about, the political relevancy, I have to say I went to see, because uh, I hadn't seen it, but I went to see Isle of Dogs last night.
2: Oh, okay. The uh, and Wes Anderson film.
1: Wes Anderson film. And I'm not a huge Wes Anderson fan, but I, I got the screener.
2: My, so I decided not to go to the press event because I want to see well, it at home and, uh, you know, with my
1: family. Let me. The, uh, we could do another podcast. That film is so politically relevant, like right now. Really? It was eerie. What? Eerie. Dude, eerie. That's all I'm going to say. Wow. We, I
2: we totally this. did not in Neither. any way think that there were any Me political either. undertones behind this film. Me I thought it was more of like a Wes Anderson escapist film with stop motion animation.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So did I. I was blown away. I would straight up say it's my favorite Wes Anderson right now.
2: Wow.
1: Straight up.
2: All right. So moving on to the other film that you had a chance to see, I did not. And I want to kind of get all the, the, the dirt on is a movie called Overlord. It's directed by Julius Avery. Um, And it has an unknown cast. I've never heard of these guys. Giovanna Depo, Wyatt Russell, Matilda Olivier. Um, And from what I understand, it's the story of two American soldiers uh, that land, I believe it was either somewhere in Europe, either in London or in France, on D-Day. And it's these American paratroopers that fly in, land, and instead of fighting regular Nazi soldiers, they're fighting zombie Nazi soldiers. And the movie, according to the trailer, looks incredible. I would say one of the best trailers I've seen this year. um, and I haven't heard anything about it. No one's talking I, about this film. So what's the deal with Overlord?
1: Okay, here's the deal. I didn't know anything about Overlord. okay. I went, I saw the poster, the poster, if you've seen it, it's it's a it's a shot of these paratroopers landing. Uh, a plane flying overhead and a bunch of paratroopers landing, but the paratroopers are spots of blood that turn into uh, so you know, brilliant in terms of so the marketing. It's a, br- it's a yeah. brilliant piece of, and I had no idea. I didn't know whether is this produced by J.J. Abrams. It's produced by J.J. Abrams. Yes, it is. And now, let me just say this: you mentioned that there are no big stars, and it's true. The the biggest star in this movie is the screenwriter. Billy Ray. <laughs> okay. okay. Cause Billy Ray, I don't know if you know, he did everything from, he not the flight country plan. singer. No, not the country singer, but he wrote flight plan. Uh, he wrote state of play. He wrote the, the original hunger games. He wrote captain Phillips. He, he wrote, uh, okay, uh all so he's, these,
2: a, he's a good writer.
1: He's a good writer. But again, if, if you notice the things I just told you, they're all different kinds of scripts, right? you know, he, he, you know, he did, you know, famously bad films too. So he was the biggest name and I knew who he was, but the movie is much more than what it, it's what you described and I haven't seen the trailers, you know me. So here's what I will say. It is about a group of of men who go in with a specific mission to take out this this uh, you know, this this uh signal jammer that's at the top of a church that's heavily fortified and they send in this group of guys to do and it's D-Day. And if they don't do it, you know, they're not going to be able to have support from, you know, it's just d days not going to work if they don't right. do it.
2: Right. D-Day, for those of you that might, you know, have forgotten, it's June 6th, 1944. The uh, Allied forces landed on Normandy and fought the German. It's like a famous scene and it was replicated beautifully by Steven Spielberg in the movie Saving Private Ryan. It's the opening Correct. shot for those 12 minutes, some of the great you know, scenes uh, uh, of movie history. That's D-Day.
1: Correct. And this film, what's, what's fun about this film is, and the best way I describe it, it's sort of like Inglorious Bastards meets Reanimator. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Because I went in having no idea. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a war movie. With I didn't know. Then all of a sudden, it starts to take a turn, and you're like, what? Is it supernatural? What? What's going on? And they, I will say this. They take every cliche, every war movie cliche you've ever seen. They, they cram into like the first 10 minutes, okay? And it's great. You love it because it's so well done. It's so well shot. But then the film goes into this area where it does not hold back, Jack. The action, the gore, the blood. Really? oh my god oh my god but it doesn't go over the top but it does not hold back so that's where it becomes it's like wow like what if sam raimi directed a war film okay that's what this is like and and it's so much fun it felt though i will say this wait so you like the film Oh, I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. They asked me for quotes. That's how much I like it. Wow. Yeah, They asked me for quotes yesterday, so they obviously are looking.
2: You know, I just got Paramount Pictures asked me for quotes for Instant Family, and I send them like two of them, and they're like, oh, these are great, so I don't know if I'll see them.
1: They asked me for some, too. Maybe we'll be on the same (laughs) page. That'd be (laughs) awesome, dude. (laughs) But So I did like the movie. It felt like a video game. I will say that, you know. The, the cast, there, there's an actor named uh, Giovanna Depo who is plays the main character and he's a young black actor. Uh, I th- you I have, know who I thought he
2: was? I thought he was the
1: from Star Wars. He looks a lot. I was just going to say that. He looks a lot like him. Or you watch it, and you go, huh, how come he didn't get that role? But but he is really good and he he pulls it off. The downside of this movie is that they make this character somebody who does stupid things. And, and So the
2: decision making is terrible, and it's distracting.
1: Well, it's not that it's distracting. You understand why for the plot of the film, because nobody would do some of the things he did if he was, you know, if he was any kind of real soldier, he wouldn't do some of these things. But you know, they really kind of break down. Like what was happening towards the end, where they had to just pull people in and speed up, you know, training to throw them into the war. You know, so it's a statement about some things there too. So you buy it to an extent. I have to give him credit. I, I as a character, he was an idiot so many times but you like the actor and you and he pulls it off he really does pull it off
2: who's this movie for and should they pay
1: top money to see this this in imax
2: you know dolby stereo okay
1: i saw it in imax okay you need to see in imax not really it was nice but you don't need to see it in imax but there's some great sequences a la spielberg and the raiders movies where Things were starting to look like video games back then. It looks like a video game. Not that the effects aren't good because they're great, but it's like one situation to the next situation to the next situation. It's like it's like you keep running. It's, there's the Indiana Jones in there. It's definitely, but this movie's for, if you're a video game fan, you'll love this movie. If you're a war movie fan, you'll like this movie. If you're a, a, a horror movie fan, you will definitely love this movie. Oh, man, dude. So yeah. this is the surprise of the week. It's absolutely surprising because I had no idea.
2: Wow, look at that.
1: I had no idea. I mean, I I didn't expect this movie to get... It's got 82 on Rotten Rotten Tomatoes. Tomatoes. Wow, look at that. For a movie like this to get 82?
2: Well, you know, it's produced by J.J. Abrams, and it has zombies in it.
1: (laughs) Well, no, they're not zombies. They're not
2: zombies. Oh, they're not zombies.
1: Well, they're... Because that's the way it's
2: being promoted, like a zombie apocalyptic dystopia of World War II?
1: Uh, all I want to say is Inglorious Bastards meets That's
2: <laughs> okay. <I wanna> <laughs>
1: That's Dude, I that say.
2: that is a great, great sort of like just analogy there. So, all right, cool, man. So, there you go, folks. I like The Front Runner. Mike wasn't really in love with it. Uh, he was okay with it. Uh, and he really, really liked Overlord. So, you I got did. two good movies. Depending on your interests. Uh, depending on your taste. Depending on your tastes of what if you want to see an adult, this
1: weekend. If you're an adult, you'll probably see the front runner. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> or if you're just looking for some comfort food, you know, on the cinema screen. Absolutely. Overlord might be a good option for you, too. All right, guys. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks a lot for uh, for breaking this down for me this weekend, man. Thank you, Jack. That's it for episode 97 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Basil Siokas and Mike Sargent for coming on the show. And I hope you guys enjoy the conversations as well. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by sharing us on social media and telling all your friends about it. You can reach me on Twitter at Jack Rico and Instagram at Jack Rico. Also, remember to catch a new episode of Consumer 101 this Saturday morning at 11 a.m. on NBC. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Running.